pleasure to introduce Jamie Pappas. Uh, he's the director of Cal Poly Crew, Cal Poly Cuesta Crew, and so we really enjoy having Jamie come and speak. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Greg. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, Greg is a good friend of mine, actually who served on our staff team for a little bit. So I've been around for a while. I don't know how many of you guys I know. I definitely recognize faces. But I've been doing the slow crew thing now for 16 years. So my wife Gretchen and I have been in the area for that long. And we just, we love it. We love where we get to live. I mean, gosh, the weather lately. Are you kidding me? Um, I was just thinking, I don't know if you guys know this, but Cal Poly's men's basketball team just made the NCAA basketball tournament. You know, so that's pretty cool. But I don't know what their marketing budget is, but they should spend every dollar they have on running ads right now during those games showing this place to the nation. I bet their, their attendance would go through the roof. If people only knew about this place, I guess we don't really want everyone to know about it, right? It's kind of our little secret. But I, I remember when they asked us to consider directing the ministry here, I actually couldn't do it at the time because I was in seminary and I wanted to finish that. And Gretchen and I were like, oh no, this is like such a great opportunity. Whoever's going to take that job will probably stay forever. And, uh, and so we just said no to it, but I don't know why the Lord did this for us, but that job stayed open for a year and a half. Nobody took it for a year and a half. And we're like, okay, we'll take it. And uh, we've been up here ever since. So I guess I'm that guy who's never going to leave, you know, <laughs> until they kick me out. But um, it's been fun to be in partnership with this church for all those years. I think Brian was the first pastor I met when I came here, and we sat down over lunch and got to know each other, um, gotten to know James and just like the worship guys. I just, it's been such a cool uh, partnership, friendship um, over all these years. So I'm glad I can be here and kind of be one of the guys to share from Ephesians. Ephesians is uh, one of my favorite books, and the reason I know that is because it doesn't really stay in my Bible anymore. Like, it just keeps, <laughs> I've read it so much, it keeps falling out. Um, it's a great book, and then also I think the reason I've been in it so much is we'll, we'll lead these summer missions trips, we call summer projects, and I've done the international ones a lot, so East Asia, El Salvador, and the projects are six weeks long, and so it's just perfect to go through the book of Ephesians, take a chapter every week, and so uh, it's, it's definitely an awesome book. So I, actually, part of Ephesians is gone. I don't even know where it is, so I printed it out on this, so this is <laughs> my Ephesians. I don't want to give up this Bible. This Bible cost me $25,000. And the reason that is is because this is what they gave me when I graduated from Talbot Seminary. They gave me this Bible, and it cost me $25,000 to get it. So it's a very valuable Bible. I want to keep using it. But, uh, well, let's get started. One of the things I did to prepare for the message today, uh, you know, besides obviously studying the Word and, and prayerfully reflecting on it, is I listened to the message from last week. I wanted to make sure that I was in step with what's been taught and what's been going on. And, and uh, it was really easy to find the message. I don't know if you guys have been to your website, but first of all, it's like everything Calvary Slow does. It's got a really cool vibe to it. It's artistically amazing, like everything you guys do. 
Um, but it's also got some great content on it, so I was able to listen to James' message from last week. And uh, and James is one of those guys where, and I was just you know I was just listening to the message, um, so obviously I'm just hearing, but I'm picturing him, you know, I'm picturing him, and he's got this big smile on his face, and you know how he is, he's just always happy, and he's talking about goats and bulls being slaughtered in the temple, and he's smiling when he's talking about it. You know, I just know that's what was going on. And uh, it was really, it was a great message. And a lot of what he did focus on was the temple, and because the passages that he was going through um, talked about how the dividing walls were torn down. And so he was talking about the temple and the dividing walls. And what was going on in the temple is the primary dividing wall in the temple really separated man from God. There was this place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence was said to dwell. And it was its own little structure there. And then everyone else would be uh, kind of on the outside of that. Except for once a year, a high priest properly prepared through some purity rituals and ceremony would be able to enter into the presence of, of the Holy of Holies. And so these dividing walls in the Old Testament was really one main wall that separated God from men. And the thing about the temple, especially Solomon's temple, is it was really built to represent the absolute holiness and beauty of God. This temple was enormous. It was made with great um, pieces of... Is there anything I can do about that, or should I just keep cruising? I'll just keep cruising. Okay. I mean, I was reading about it, and the Holy of Holies is overlaid with gold. The floors, the walls, the ceilings, you know, and even the outer, an outer area... Everything was covered in gold, and so it represents God's absolute beauty and holiness. And then men are allowed to kind of come near that, and one man once a year is allowed to go into his presence. So it really represents the absolute holiness of God and then the separation that exists between us and him. Now, the temple that Jesus would be talking about and the temple that Paul would be referring to was not Solomon's temple, but it would be Herod's temple. What's interesting about Herod's temple is that there were actually additional, uh, additional dividing walls that were built. These walls separated the Gentiles or the non-Jews from the Jewish people, and then there was also a wall that separated the women from the men. I'll just keep talking. Oh, yeah, maybe that's it, dude. That is an awesome idea. Look at that. <laughs> Love it. There's always a solution. I just never know what it is. So thanks for that. <clears throat> so it's interesting that these other walls were, in a sense, built by man, right? The architects built these other dividing walls to separate people that weren't quite as holy or didn't quite have it together in order to they didn't worship together. And I was thinking about Jesus' ministry. And in many ways, when he was on earth, he was addressing some of these other kinds of walls that had been built up. You know, he had meals with the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, because those are walls that the religious people had put up, saying, like, these guys can't come near to God. And I think we have kind of done that as well, the abortionists or... The, the gay and lesbian community and people like that. 
Like we somehow think that's different. But what, what James talked about, and what Scripture talks about, and what the Gospel is all about, is all those walls are brought down by Jesus, and we're all on a level playing field, separated from God, regardless of your past, regardless of how much church you've done, regardless of your religious background, without the blood of Christ purifying us and giving us what we need to enter into God's presence, we're all separated from God. And you can make little dividing walls in your heart of who you think is in and who you think is out. The fact is we're all out, and everybody needed the gospel. Everyone needs Christ in order to come into God's presence. And that's why if you read up in the chapter, um, and even in today's, mess, today's verses, it talks about, you know, we were hostile toward God. We were enemies of God. Actually, it's described, we were dead enemies of God. So we're enemies, but we're already dead. That's how hopeless we are without Christ giving us life and life abundantly. So today's message continues with that theme of the temple, continues with the theme of dividing walls being torn down. But the cool thing is Paul takes it one step farther. Uh, I guess it's further, right? Yeah, because it's not actual distance. So. so if you're using it in a metaphorical sense, it's further. If you're using it in a literal sense, it's farther. That's free. There's a free lesson there. And I, th and I think that's right. I think that's right. So he takes it one step further because it's metaphorical. Okay, gosh, I feel like I should pray now after that. <laughs> Let's do this. Let's read the passage. That'll, that'll focus us in the right direction. So the verses for today are Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. I'll read those. And he came, this is Jesus, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Okay, so it start, starts off by talking about Christ coming and preaching peace to those who are far away and those who are near. And so the far away would be those Gentiles. And that's Paul's primary uh, primary audience in this section is he's speaking to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the ones who are far away. Okay, they'd be in the outer part of the temple, if at all. And then those who are near would be the religious people, the Jews. Okay, and what it talks about here is that Christ preached peace to both of those groups. Both groups needed the peace to be preached to them because they were both being hostile. Some more rebellious than others, but some subtle in their hearts being rebellious. And then what's being talked about here is the reconciliation that happens in the gospel is not just reconcili reconciliating us to God, which is huge, um, but also the reconciliating of people together, okay? Bringing them um, in access to God, but also in fellowship with one another. Because the Jews and the Gentiles would be 
you know, they were very hostile towards one another. It, it would be like back in World War II, the Nazis and the Jews. I mean, it was that violent and that, um, that serious. So the reconciliation that takes place through the gospel, and James talked about this, is us with God, but then us with one another as well. So in this passage, in verse 17, he talks about the far away and the near. And when I was thinking on that and, and praying through that passage, a, uh, a parable was brought to mind, a story that Jesus told about the prodigal son. And I know it's a familiar one. It's been familiar to me for years. But as I've been thinking more about this story, there's been new light that's been shed in my life. So I'd like to share it because I think it does a great job of painting the picture of the far away and the near. So in this story, you have this father who's very wealthy, very rich, and in it, this, the younger son comes up to him and says, hey, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. And basically what he's saying to this father is, I wish you were dead, because the only way that a son could get an inheritance was if the father was dead. He's basically saying, I wish you were dead. I want to have nothing to do with you. All I want is your money. Now, this father graciously gives the son his inheritance, and what it says in the story is that the son now goes far away, goes to a faraway land. And what he does there is he basically just leads a rebellious life. He parties, he hangs out with prostitutes, he um, lives a very licentious life, just does whatever he wants, and ultimately squanders the entire inheritance. So he finds himself needing to live, and he takes up a job feeding pigs. Now, for a Jew, hearing that story, they would be appalled because they didn't even eat pigs. Pigs were considered unclean, and if your job is actually to serve pigs, to feed pigs, that's like the lowest of lows. So this guy was at the lowest point of his life, for sure. And he wasn't even allowed to eat the grain. He couldn't even eat the stuff that he was feeding these pigs. So he realizes, oh my gosh, you know, my father's servants have it better than I do. I should just go back to my father and apologize, and just be willing to become a servant. And so what the story says is that the son decides to come back home, and the text reads, when the son was yet far away, the father comes running after him. And I love that picture, one, because the father probably was waiting for his son to come back, and he's looking off in the distance. And even when he was far away, the father saw him and comes running out after him. Again, in this culture, something that's good to know is that older, distinguished men did not run. They wore these long robes. It's kind of hard to run, and it just wasn't distinguished to do. But this father, not caring about that, probably had to pull up his robe and show his bare legs. It's not cool back then. It's probably not cool now. No, it's, it's cool now. <laughs> not my legs. But anyway, so he, he pulls up this thing and goes running after the sun, and the son just like, I just want to, can I just be your servant? He's like, that's ridiculous. You are my son, and nothing has changed because of what you've done. You are, you are my son, and I'm going to give you all that you deserve. He puts a ring that signifies his honor and a robe, and, and then throws this big party for him because his lost son has finally come home, you know? Now, often when we tell this story, that's where it ends. We just talk about the lost son and the one that partied and finally came back. But the story also talks about the older son, the son that didn't ask for his inheritance, the son that didn't go far off and party. The text describes this older son hearing the party, okay? 
And it says that the older son draws near to the party, but then goes off into the field. And the older son is the one who's responsible, the one that does all the right religious things. And what's really cool about the story is this son who's really upset about what's going on, like, why does he get a party when he went and did all that stuff? And he's getting this huge celebration, and I'm the faithful one. I'm the one that, you know, goes to church every week, and I'm the one that pays the tithes, and I'm the one that, the one that does all these things for my father, and I get nothing. And what the father does, even though the son is near, he still comes out to him. And he says, son, everything I have is yours. You know? And what you see in that is you see this older son, though near, was not with the father. He was busying himself with the things that he could do for God. And then ultimately got bitter because he didn't get the things he wanted from God. And I think that's why I love this passage, because it's the far and the near. And all of us need Jesus in order to come to the Father. And some of us have done the young son thing, but a lot of us, I think, are still doing the old son thing. Where we're, we're doing the church thing, we're even maybe reading our Bible, and giving money, and doing all those things, which are really good things, but you don't do those in place of being with God. Never let your for God get in the way of your with God, right? And so the, the peace that we all need, again, level playing field, the walls have been broken down, is the peace that only Jesus can offer. We both need the peace of Christ. Let's continue in the passage, verse 18. So what it says in verse 18 um, is that through him, so through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, now, the access that's being referred to there is the kind of access that you would need if you were, you know, a citizen or a person that wanted to actually have interaction with the king, okay? And there was a position there, a servant of the king, that would make sure that what you had to say was legit and would grant you the access to the king. And so Jesus is being described as that person, the person who's going to allow you to have access to, to the king. And you need that person because the king could be, a, coming before the king could be a pretty terrifying thing because the king had all the power. He could take you out and he could get rid of your life in an instant. I was thinking about the king and, and that image of like a, a court area where someone's coming into the presence of the king and I couldn't help thinking about the movie The Emperor's New Groove. Okay, I think the Emperor's New Groove is one of the forgotten gems of the Disney lineup. I'm not kidding you. Like, that is a great movie. And here's what I love about this. So my daughter, Grace, we would do, watch Disney movies, you know, since she was like two years old. We'd watch Toy Story, I think was the first one we watched. It just came out. And I, can, I actually I had this image burned in my head of her sitting in her high chair eating this really greasy quesadilla that I got from this place down the street. And we're just watching it. And... And, you know, she progressed to different uh, Disney movies, but she never got into the princess movies. They just were never her thing. And the more I thought about that, I thought, you know what, I'm totally okay with that. And it's not because, it's not because I don't think my daughter's a princess, and I think she definitely is, but think about The Little Mermaid. Okay, 
The Little Mermaid was like the little brat, basically. They should, that should be the translation. Think about it, okay? She's got, she's got everything she ever would need. She's got this great relationship with her dad, and she's been blessed with this awesome voice, and she's got all this stuff going for him, and then she sees a guy. And she's willing to, like, sell her soul for this guy, totally rebel against her father. I'm like, what kind of example is that to little girls? You know, dads don't like that kind of film. So I'm totally okay if she never really cared much for The Little Mermaid. But we did like, um, we did like The Emperor's New Groove. And in The Emperor's New Groove, you have Cusco, and David Spade is the voice, does an awesome job. And in it, you know, I think the opening scene is like some people trying to come before him and he's kind of kicked back in his throne and they were trembling. They were so scared of this king because he had all the power. And sometimes he would. He'd pull the lever or push the button, I don't remember, and the floor would drop out and then you'd end up going through this series of slides and then you'd be kicked out the side of the castle right into the moat. You know, so if you said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, this powerful king would just pull the lever. And what goes on throughout the whole movie is, is, the, is David Spade's famous line, not touchy. Not touchy. Like he's just like this powerful guy that doesn't want anyone to touchy him, you know? <laughs> and, and honestly, that's kind of the way it was. Like a king was sort of very distant from the common people, you know? And that's why you needed an accessor, you know, to bring you into his presence. And God would be even more so. I mean, you got this holy, righteous God who has the power to throw the universe into existence, you know, this transcendent God. And who are we to come into his presence, you know? And you would come into his presence with trembling and fear, you know, for good reasons. But through the blood of Christ, we can come in with full confidence, right? Because the purity that's needed the forgiveness that's needed, the righteousness, righteousness that's needed in order to come into his presence has totally been taken care of through Christ's death on the cross. Now, the, the cool part about this verse, which would be easy to miss, is how it says that we have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is where Ephesians particularly is really good about reminding us that we don't just have access to a king, but our identity has been totally changed, and now we are sons and daughters of the king, and we can call this king father. Okay, so for, for us who have been Christians, maybe for a while, we're like, what's the big deal? Of course we can call God father. Well, in the Old Testament, you wouldn't even want to speak the name of God, okay? Because he was so holy. I mean, you had to be careful about using the particular name of God in his, you know, in his presence. And God was not referred to directly as the Father in the Old Testament. They'd be referred to metaphorically, but you would never address God as your Father. That just wasn't heard of. But then you have Jesus, the accessor, the one who gives us access, who teaches us to pray by saying, Our Father. And then later he talks about how God is our Abba, our Daddy, you know? And so this is kind of mind-blowing stuff where all of a sudden this, this terrifying notachi kind of king becomes this intimate, kind father that we can have a relationship with. And that's, that's really what is going on 
And Ephesians chapter 1 highlights that, where it talks about our adoption as sons and daughters. It talks about our inheritance, that we have everything that's entitled to a son. So everything that Jesus has, we have, because our identity has totally been changed. In verse 19, Paul goes on to describe more identity change that takes place. Okay? So we once were, eight, you know, we once were separated because of our sin. Now he's going to talk about how in verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Someone's not happy. <laughs> so, the, uh, so it talks about being strangers. So a stranger would be a foreigner, kind of a foreign visitor, just kind of passing through town. It's kind of like what we do on our summer projects with crew. We go and live in a place for about six weeks. You know, it's not all that long. We're, we're, we're barely there long enough to get to know the language. We're not there long enough to get the language. So we, don't, we feel like strangers, you know. We definitely feel out of place because we can't speak the language and stuff like that. So that'd be a, a stranger or a foreigner. And then it also talks about aliens the aliens here would be like resident aliens. So these are the people who are actually paying money to live there and call this place home, but they have to pay. And even though they're paying, they don't get any rights, not the inherent rights of a normal citizen. They can't vote if there is voting or that kind of thing. Okay? So that's kind of how it used to be for a Gentile. Like They were kind of excluded outside of the people of God. They were strangers or aliens. And then what it's saying is, your identity just got changed, and you are now fellow citizens with all the inherent rights, and you're also considered a saint. We could talk more about what that means, but I think in this context what Paul's going for is to help these Gentiles understand that though they once were the ones excluded, outside of the blessings of God, behind the wall, apart from the Jews, they are now named among the, site, the saints. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These guys are your bros. Like You are now part of this household, right? Verse 19 says, this is your household. This is your crew. So where you used to feel out of place, stranger, didn't know the language, didn't get the inside jokes, totally didn't have any rights, you are now part of the household of God, and all these guys are kicking it on the couch with you. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. You have a place, you feel known, and you feel like you belong. That's the vision for church. The vision for church, this place, is that it would be a place that regardless of which wall you were behind or how excluded you feel or how far away or how near you might be, that this would be a place where you say, this is my household, These are my, this is my family, this is where I belong. And I think this church does a really good job of that. I feel that way when I come here. Um, it doesn't mean there's not room for improvement, but we ought to view each other as part of the same household. We are the family of God. If, I, if all the guys are sons and all the girls are daughters, and we're all family, you know, we're brothers and sisters. So such a great image. And again, for a Gentile, you guys have to, have to get this. They were totally excluded from any of this. But all, all of a sudden, they're now part of the family, you know. And uh, James' message um, was humbled and thankful, I think is his title of it. Humbled and thankful. And that should be the thing that we keep 
referring back to when we hear stuff like this, that we should be really humbled that, that the God of the universe would die on the cross for us so that we could be part of his family and just thankful for that continually. So we go from being strangers and aliens to citizens and saints, part of God's household, right? We go from having no rights at all, being dead enemies of God, to now being sons and daughters. We go from being foreigners to family. We go from having to have permission to even talk to being like intimate conversation with God. It's a pretty cool thing. Well, what I'd like to do at this point in the message is actually hit pause and give us a chance just to think about these things and reflect on these truths that I've been sharing. I like to take time to do that. I, you know, I love studying. I love learning. I love getting the facts. But, you know, we also want to make sure that we're connecting with the message in our heart and that we're reflecting on what it means for us. So what I'd like to do is you guys can kind of bow your heads or just close your eyes or whatever, and let me just kind of lead us through a little time of reflection. Lord, I thank you that uh, the walls are in shambles and you invite us. In fact, as we turn towards you, you want to run to us. I pray for this group and um, I ask that they would reflect on how they view you. Um, if they view you as a tyrant king who has condemnation and judgment and nothing but bad things for them and they're afraid to come near. I ask that you would remind them of Christ's death and the access that you provide for them. For those of us who are the near ones, would we recognize that you want to be with us? And God, if there's something that's keeping all of us from drawing close to you. Would you show us what that is? If it's a false view of who you are, would you change that? If it's our own rebelliousness or sin, would we confess that? Lord, and I thank you that when we do, you embrace us with open arms as a loving, kind Father. Amen. Let's continue in the passage, um, verse 20. What, God, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to use a little bit different kind of a metaphor to describe what's also part of our identity. So he's doing a lot of identity things, and he kind of moves from one thing to another, which is totally cool. He's talking about strangers and aliens and now fellow citizens, and he's talking about a household. And this household is more, you know, what we've been talking about is more of a familial thing, you know, brothers and sisters and kind of being bros together. He's going to take that household thing and now compare it 
to the temple. Okay? So that's what he's doing in verses 20 through 22. So this is what he says. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay? So the household now is this holy temple that we're a part of. So our identity now is, is being the temple of God. And he describes the different parts of that. So he starts off by saying, hey, you know, part of the key part of the temple is this foundation. Talks about the foundation being the apostles and the prophets. And the apostles and the prophets were anointed by God to bring forth God's truth. There was a little bit of prophesying that would happen, but most of what prophets did, 90% of what they did is just brought forth the word of God. They preached the word of God. It was less foretelling and more forthtelling. They foretold the truths of God. And then, of course, the apostles are the ones that gave us you know, the New Testament and they are bringing forth. So our faith, our household, is built on this amazing foundation of truth. And it's a blessing to have this because it's so easy to get caught up in the latest trend or philosophy or way of thinking and kind of wander here and there. And if we build our foundation, if our foundation is consist, consists of the latest philosophy or trend, it's going to have these cracks and it's going to be slanted and we're going to go off in the wrong direction and the walls are going to fall over. It's disastrous. But our foundation is firm. It's stood firm for thousands of years and it can be trusted. So that's our foundation. The other piece that's described is this cornerstone. And Jesus is described as the cornerstone. And I've always heard that and I'm like, that's cool. I don't even know what that means. You know, what does it mean he's the cornerstone and how important can that really be? You know, like, what the heck? is a cornerstone. And a cornerstone is also called a capstone, and it's um, literally the tip of the angle. And that's probably not very helpful, but what it is is you got these two walls that are coming together, and they join at a 90-degree angle. And these walls are made out of stone back then. And if you're going to keep these two walls together, you need to put a capstone or something on it that's going to hold those two things together. So the capstone was actually considered even more important, at least in Eastern mindset, ancient Eastern mindset, more important than the foundation. And it kind of makes sense, because if your foundation's good, but the walls keep falling down, that's not very helpful, right? So, so the capstone would often have the royal signature on it, or the marks of royalty on it. And so Jesus is the one who's keeping the whole thing together, right? He's the, he's the cornerstone that keeps the walls together. As interesting as that is, the, the more important thing, I think, is that we are the temple where God's spirit dwells. Okay? And the word for temple there isn't, it's the word that doesn't refer to the whole big thing, but it refers to the, the inner sanctuary. Like, we are now the holy of holies. <laughs> right? We are this holy of holies place where God's spirit absolutely dwells and works and moves. Now, most of the references in the New Testament to the temple, they're going to refer to the actual temple, so Herod's temple, and maybe back to Solomon's. I didn't read each one. but So most, most of the times when you read the word temple in the New Testament, that's what it's referring to. Jesus also refers to himself as the temple, and that makes sense because he is a holy place where the spirit of God resides makes sense that he would refer to himself as the temple. But all the other references to the temple are actually referring to us, 
Even though the language might say you, it's a plural you. And I think that's important for us because growing, in a, growing up in a Western culture, being part of a Western culture, we're very individualistic when we think about our faith. We think about me and God, and it's all about me, and we don't really consider that we're part of this family or household or that what we do affects those around us. You know, we often tend to be very individualistic. Eastern culture, Eastern mindset, very different, very corporate. And so when Paul's talking about you're the temple, he's saying you're the temple. Like all of us are this temple. And, he, and you know, he's already talked about how in uh, Ephesians 2.10 that each of us are a workmanship of God. So we're these stones, living stones, that are part of this temple, and we're each made uniquely. We're each a work of art. That's awesome. And, and God's not saying you're not important and that you're not individualistic, but you're a, you're a stone in this bigger thing going on, this thing we call church, this thing we call the body of Christ, the thing that Paul is calling the temple. And his spirit lives within us. And we bring our different gifts and abilities and strengths and weaknesses to all make this thing be a glorification to God. So I think it's good for us to keep that in mind. I mean, Christians for 300 years did not have a place to worship, no building to worship. And so they, they got that they were the temple. That's all there was. And I think we sometimes think, oh, God's spirit resides in this building. He, he does, but he resides in this building because he resides in us. You know, there's nothing unique about this building. It's what God is doing in you. So there is an individual reality to the spirit dwelling in each person. Not saying that's not true. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But more so when we're talking about the temple, it's about us corporately. So the key thing is that God's spirit is dwelling here in this holy place, which is not the building, but it's us. And what's really interesting is in that holy of holies, there was a veil that separated holy of holies from the outside and this veil was made up of different colors there was blue as a part of the veil and the blue represented earth heaven i did that last time blue represents heaven there was also crimson or red and the crimson represented earth okay so you had blue representing heaven crimson representing the earth and there was also purple in it and the purple is a blend of those two colors which represented heaven coming down to earth. Okay? So in the Holy of Holies, that's what's going on there. You have heaven meeting earth, God's presence on earth. Well, what happened when Christ died on the cross is that veil was torn in two. Okay? Very significant. Because what's that illustrating is what we've been talking about, that that barrier is gone. Now we have access to God through Christ. But there's something else very significant that's going on, and it's, it's a piece of the gospel that I think we either forget or take for granted. And that is this, that not only do we have access with God, but God is with us. It's not just that he's this distant king that we can now have a conversation with, but the crazy thing about the gospel is that God's spirit not just is accessible, but he's in us. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, you have the promised Holy Spirit coming down. Remember, the Spirit that was only in the Holy of Holies during this one, you know, one place, one person once a year could access 
that same spirit is now coming down and being a part of all of us. And one thing that happens there, it's really interesting, is when the spirit comes down on all these different people, he comes down in the form of a tongue of fire, and then each of these people starts speaking different languages. They're not just speaking Hebrew, right? They're speaking the tongues of all the nations, okay? And what that signifies is that the Holy Spirit is not just the promised gift for the Jews, but the Holy Spirit is for all peoples, all places. And what you see in the book of Acts is you see people being filled with the Spirit, and there's this outward demonstration of that filling. And that outward demonstration is the speaking in tongues, okay, to signify the presence of God's Spirit in that person. In fact, in one passage, I should have looked it up, but in one passage, the Jews are like, oh, the Holy Spirit is for the Gentiles. You know, and they needed that outward demonstration to see that the Spirit's present was, presence was really there. So it's such a cool picture of how the gospel is for all peoples, all nations, you know, and God goes to this extra effort. And in fact, the book of Acts, I should, the book of Acts is about the gospel moving from the center of the Jewish world, Jerusalem, to the center of the Gentile world, Rome. That's where the book of Acts ends. And it's about the gospel being for all nations and for all peoples. And it's always been that way from the beginning of the book of Genesis and on. Abraham was to be a blessing to many nations. Okay, I wasn't planning on saying all that, but that's an important part of what's going on. So here's, here's how I want to wrap things up. I want to wrap things up by thinking a little bit more about the fact that God's spirit, his presence is with us. Um, this is part of Peter's sermon um, the, the passage that's up there, after all this chaos happens, you know, he says this, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. I remember I, uh, one time I participated in Take Your Daughter to Work Day, which was kind of fun. I got to take Grace on the campus at Cal Poly, and she got to hang out with college students. And she probably wonders, like, wait, this is a real job? You get to hang out with college students all day? Like, how does that work, you know? And it works great. But what if we could do Take Jesus to Work Day? Like, what if? You know, like you woke up in the morning and Jesus is kind of, he made breakfast for you probably. Fit, probably fish, right? And, and he goes with you every place you go. So probably take your, it'd be take Jesus to work or take Jesus to class or take Jesus, you know, to the rec center or whatever you're doing that day. Like he's just with you at all times, you know, you get to go everywhere with him. And he's right there by your side and if you have a problem or you have a question or whatever, you know, need someone to talk to. He's like right there with you at all times. You know, and really in a sense, that's what the apostles got, the disciples. The disciples got, you know, take Jesus to work day every single day of their lives. What's crazy about that is in chapter 16, verse 7 of John, Jesus says, it's better that I leave because I want to give you the Holy Spirit. And some of us are thinking, wait, what could be better than taking Jesus with us everywhere we go? You know? And I think the reason Jesus says it's better is because in the flesh, he was located in space and time. He could only be with, in one place at one time, right? He was 
spatially located. The Holy Spirit, not so much. And so Jesus knew it was better that he would leave and bring the Spirit's presence so that every person in every place at all times could have God's Spirit. You guys, every day of your life is take Jesus to work day. Like, you, he's with us. He is in us. And I know that you know that conceptually, more than likely you know that conceptually, but I don't think we act like it. I really don't. I think about the way that I pray sometimes. And prayer is almost, kind of feels like I'm making a long-distance phone call. Like, okay, I have access, I have God's number, I have access to God, but he's somewhere way far away, right? Do you feel that way when you're praying? Like, you feel like you're talking to somebody who's distant on the other side of the universe. It's not true. He's right here. He's, he's with us. When we worship, sometimes we're just kind of hoping that he hears us, or I don't know, it just seems like we're projecting our voices louder so that he can, he's with us, in our midst, you know, and and I think times of when I'm like wrestling with temptation or I'm just struggling in my own weakness and I'll go on and on and on. And yet he's with me the whole time and I just, I ignore him. I'll, I'll act like it's all about my strength and, and I won't talk to him about that. You know? Or, you know, sometimes I actually follow through in that and I do sin. And I'll sin as though God's not with me in the sin. Do you guys know that he's right there with you everything you do? You know? He, it, we don't have to summon him and ask him to be here. Now, I think sometimes we ask him to manifest his power. Uh, the language the New Testament uses is fill us. But when we ask for God to fill us, what we're doing is we're asking him to empower us and direct us. He indwells every believer. That doesn't change. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So every believer has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The question is, are we going to allow him to direct and empower and guide our lives? That is one of the most awesome promises of the gospel, but we treat the Holy Spirit like he's the third string of the Trinity. Like it's God the Father, God the Son, and yeah, the Holy Spirit. Maybe he'll get some play time, you know. For don't I mean, really? And I think we're just afraid of the Spirit. We don't know how to teach it or what's this tongues thing. Like we're, we know, and that gets in the way of just experiencing God's presence who's with us constantly. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd love to read a, a closing passage. And in this passage, um, if, if you are, this passage is for everybody, but I think if you're new and you're just checking things out, I would really ask you to consider specifically, you consider the words of this passage. So let me read this. It's Acts chapter uh, 17, verses 24 through 27. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath, in all things. And he made from one man, Jesus, every nation of mankind to live on the earth, all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the creator. 
and you also are the one who gives us access. Lord, and I, I believe that in this room there are people who are groping for something in the dark, trying to grab a hold of something that will give them a firm foundation and will give them a place to belong and will give them true relationship. And Lord, I thank you that through your gospel we have a firm foundation, that we have ongoing access with the God who lives in us and dwells in us, and that we have relationships that are loving and joyful and real. And I, and I pray that everyone here would experience that. Lord, would we be a people who do not pray like you are far off, but pray like you are present. And pray like you are a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Um, and Lord, whatever we might think of ourselves, um, cheater, adulterer, drunkard, lustful, that you have changed our identity into son, daughter, saint, holy one. And Lord, that just blows me away, but I thank you so much that you did what was necessary to give us a brand new identity. Would, it, would we go through our days not acting like you're distant and far off, but present? Moment by moment, communing with, with you because you are with us.